The most powerful man after the king of Morocco, General Afkir, stages a coup d'etat that fails. He is murdered. His eldest daughter, her five siblings and mother are sentenced to a desert jail for 20 years. The daughter's name, Malika Afkir. The book, Stolen Lives. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's, Let's get, get lit. lit. And this is Alexis. And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Oh, no drama, yep. Dramatic, yep. Mm-hmm. We got that. <laughs> and sometimes we have books. Oh, so how sometimes. you doing? How's quarantine treating you? Um, So far, again, so good. I'm, I went out yesterday for a walk and I went to the store. I'm going to stop going to the store. I think I'm going to stay home forever now i don't need to leave the house anymore because whenever i go to the store i spend a hundred dollars and <laughs> that's you're not so going unnecessary often. you're not going yeah often. but it's unnecessary i didn't need to be in the store i went in there for two things and it's for something to it's do too much <laughs> it's, it's too much where people no wearing... one needs to do that were people wearing masks yeah some somewhere oh actually um there was a sign up said that you had to wear a mask so yeah people oh, were yeah. wearing masks yeah, one yep. of my friends said uh, he went grocery shopping and no one was wearing masks but him. But that's a mandate in our uh, suburb, yeah, that's so I'm I surprised. Thought. Yeah. Yeah. But no, who's enforcing it? Yeah, I don't know. In some places they are, in some places they're not. Mm-hmm. So how about you? How's it going on your end? Good. I can't complain, you know. Um, the launch of our new candle, luxury candle line, Light Toadies, went really well. <laughs> so yeah. I'm really happy about it. Um, that's good. How are you enjoying? I mean, I'm happy about that, too. (laughs) I am. I'm happy about that. Yeah. It's a lot um, of work. Yeah, it is. It's a lot of work, but we love our product and the candles are awesome. I put them, you know, up there with the Parisian brands like Diptyque and Overose. Better. These are the best candles in the world. Let's just get to it. Get into it. Get into (laughs) it. So anything else going on with you this week? I'm exhausted. I can't remember. It's okay. No um, pressure. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. I finished. Life is hard. (laughs) Okay. Thanks for that message. I finished reading this book (laughs) around 2 a.m. and my eyeballs hurt. They so dry. So let's move on. (laughs) If I could just insert that I finished um, my script. (laughs) Your notes for the show? (laughs) 12. 12. It's been a hard week. You know, quarantine doesn't produce more time. I thought, you know, we're at home. We'll have more time to do things. Oh my goodness, no. That is a deep misconception. <laughs> it's a deep. You are just we at are home working. It. Yes, let us start with that now. You do not have more time. I miss television. I'm ready to watch some television and eat some snacks. I'm tired of quarantine. It's too when, much work. When does that day happen? Right. When I can just sit and watch TV. You know, I haven't binge watched anything. I oh haven't had time I wouldn't even to. know where to start. What's good right now? I wouldn't even know. I tried to start Little Fires Everywhere, but I hated the book so much I couldn't even do it. See, the interesting thing is, even when I hate something, I push through. I am committed. Yeah. I don't know why, but I do be committed to such things, even when I don't like them. (laughs) The TV and movie adaptions aren't always like the book. So, no, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm not moved by that story. Yeah. So anyway, you ready to move on? 
Yeah, let's move on now. Now that we <laughs> it's know. It's great to see you. I love your afro. So did you cut your own hair? No, ma'am. It is shrinkage. And I, I just, you know, it. worked at. The worked versatility. At. The versatility of natural hair. It looks beautiful on you. Yes. Thank you. And I love it. I can't stop talking about my afro. Let me just get into it, everybody. I'm going to have to post a picture. You, you are. Let us post. Yeah. yeah you mm-hmm, can send me a, a non-fuzzy picture. Take it with your archaic phone. Girl, I can't. That I can't do that. Now, if that's the case, then I don't already lost. Stop okay. it. I can't do that. So each week, we, each week, readers, we select a theme to discuss based on the book we're reading. And the book this, the um theme this week, excuse me, is child marriages. Now, I chose this theme because that's a subject I don't know a lot about. Um, this won't be an overly depressing segment, but I did do some research and I wanted to share some things I learned about um, child marriages across the world. Uh, do you know anything about child marriages? I, I did. I don't. And but I did do a little research as well to find out like its origins and the thoughts behind it. So, so that I don't have. Hear. I don't think oh, I have okay. origin information. So I'd be. Yeah, I want to know what you found. Um, first of all, almost every country in the world participates in child marriages of um, some sort. And both boys and girls are married. Of course, nine out of 10 child marriages involved young girls being married to older men. Um, Something that really surprised me was that (laughs) in the United States, almost 250,000 children, so a quarter of a million children were married between 2000 and 2010, some as young as, can you guess? 12. 10 years old. In the United States. A real baby. Mm Mm-hmm. This is at the approval of their parents. So almost all girls were married to adult men. And apparently things Uh. like your parents approval um, can easily lead to. So the thing is, it's not that hard (laughs) in my mind. And perhaps with a lot of our readers, you think, well, this is America. (laughs) That's that's not that's barbaric. We don't do that here. We don't know her. Child marriage, we don't know her. Well, apparently we do, and we know her very well um, because it's very easy with parents' permission and other factors, actually, not just mm-hmm. parents' permission. Right, um, right. A 40-year-old man, in theory, could marry a five-year-old baby. Oh, stop it. That's gross. That's mm-hmm. too much. So um, the articles I found were from like 2018 to 2020. I wanted to get some recent information. Um, I have not found anything where this practice has been outlawed. I know that Florida took steps to ban the practice for under 18 year olds. Um, There has been efforts made uh, through the court system. Um, One case involved a 17 year old Girl Scout who like made it her passion to end the legality of child marriage. And um, one of the lawmakers said, well, a 70 year old child shouldn't have say in these very complex matters. <laughs> so, oh, you know, as it, as it but, is. but somebody oh, can marry man. her, though. <laughs> so mm-hmm. she don't have a voice to speak out against anything, but she could be married. Yeah. OK. Yeah. And so um, this made me think of situations like celebrities who. Um, enjoy the company of young children and people that go along with that. R. Kelly, you know, is an obvious example. Um, mm-hmm. Some people feel like, well, that girl knows what she's doing. So I wanted to bring up um, very scientific factors as to why child marriage hurts everyone. 
And then also share uh, one or two stories very quickly of Americans who are married as children. So first of all, um, there's a great article in Healthline about what's the best age to get pregnant. And this article isn't about child marriage. It's just about it's for women who are looking to find the perfect age to start a family. Mm-hmm. That's on a lot of women's minds. You know, we're um, born with as many eggs as we're ever going to have. Right. About a million of them. And then as we get older, them eggs just like start packing up. They start get, gathering their things. Some they of them stick go. around, but they be like old and useless, just like the kids they turn into. Oh, this is crazy. <laughs> so, <laughs> some eggs leave to start their own lives. Some just stay around and play video games and they ain't useless to anybody. Well, by the wow. time you're 37, it's estimated that you have 25,000 eggs left. Um, it's funny because I think after 32 years old, when you get pregnant, you know what the name for that is? No. A geriatric pregnancy. Oh, oh I thought that started at 40. No, nah, girl, you be like all young and sprite. But in the medical world, you're old. You're old, geriatric you're dusting off eggs hurt. and you're trying to make <laughs> omelets. <laughs> so that's a geriatric pregnancy. Yeah. Um, and so it says by age 35, your ads, odds of conceiving after three months are um, trying of trying are about 12 percent. That's really low. And, you know, we're developing our um, most people are developing their foundation in life, whether that be, you know, a job, maybe buying a home. All of that is coming later and later for us. But yeah. our bodies aren't changing. So that's a cause for pain for a lot of couples who want to have kids. I know. Right. Right. So a few studies have found that the best age to have children is. Can you guess? Uh, 23. Oh, a little older. So like between 27 and 30, actually. Um, oh, your, interesting. Yeah. Your body. I mean, I'm I'm sure 23 is great, too. But the idea is that um, your body is ready and hopefully financially um, and your own brain development have matured to a point where you can start having children because our brains are still developing in our early 20s. So it's you not know? just based on um, eggs. It's based on a lot of other factors. Right. Exactly. Okay. So that makes um, sense. If if eggs are your only interest, then early 20s. Yes. OK. But right. um, as we get older, more established, we're in a better position to have children, too. Um, of course, you know, people are having kids older and older. It, it yeah. can be a struggle, but um, that's what's going on right now. That's like I can think of a few of my friends who uh, waited. They were married for a few years before they had children. So, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So when you think of a 13 year old, a 17 year old having children, um, not only are their bodies not fully developed, I, I mean, a child is taking nutrients away from you, moving your organs around, readjusting your bones. Um, a child is still developing. So, of course, mortality rates are higher in child mothers and child mm-hmm. mothers are those before the age of 18. Um, mm-hmm. Also, you know, child marriage is sexist, <laughs> which some people don't care about. I understand that. Um, but since nine and 10 girls who are married or children who are married are girls, these mean this means these girls grow up with no thought of the future. No um, contemplation as to how their life has purpose outside of pleasing their husband. And that can be a problem that hurts everyone. When children grow up without a strong purpose in life, um, and then have children of their own, they instill what values into their own kids. That can be very uh, difficult to 
to can teach I, a um, child morality. Mm-hmm. Can I just insert this um, article that talked about it? It said oh, that please, um, yeah. a girl in a child marriage has less chance to go to school and um, parents think education will undermine her ability to be a traditional wife and, and mother. And so. So what I the hear development is that these pedophiles who are marrying young girls and we can call them what they are because that is the correct term for men who seek out children or women who seek out children. These pedophiles that marry children um, are s- stupid people. <laughs> Not all of them, but, you know, the, the more you are a thinker, the less you'll be able to please your dumb husband. <laughs> right, and you can focus on being a wife and a mother. And that's all you can focus on because you don't know anything else. Not that education is by any means the begin, all, the begin and end to a thoughtful life. I know people who have little education and are just very intelligent naturally. So that's not what we're saying here, right? We're talking about opportunities in life. Mm-hmm. And but life education is important because yeah, when you, yeah. um, if you get married at a tender age, um, you're not getting you your mother's lived. education. The things that your mother would teach you, um, which is so very important in a, in a child's life. You make a great point. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's Life education is a huge um, factor in who we become as people. Um, also, child marriage is linked to violence and exploitation, of course, because you're marrying a child to dominate over her. Um, so, yeah. So, of course, in child marriages, brides are often abused. Um, it's also a thing in the United States and all over the world where a child may be raped, become pregnant and then is forced to marry her assaulter. Uh, so as to avoid scandal or it's seen as cleansing the whole act that created this child. Um, so, you know, that's a very, think about it. So in the United States, statutory rape is a crime. However, if right. that assailant, 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 okay. If that criminal <laughs> uh, um, marries their victim, then it's all legal. Yep. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so as we said, it's also everywhere where the her- effects are hereditary because um, it's linked to maternal and infant mortality. So um, those bodies that haven't developed having children of their own um, threatens the lives of everyone involved. So it's a serious thing. And you may think, reader, that this is just a problem with uh, excessively fanatically religious households or I don't know, but that that is a common thought. But no, um, there is an example in The Guardian of a woman who came from um, well, her name is Donna Pollard and you can look her up. Last name P is in Paul O-L-L-A-R-D. She came up in a white middle class, non-religious family in a town called London, Kentucky. And she was married at 16. The man was nearly 15 years older. Her father had died and her mother was ready to get rid of her. And this man was like, um, he was her mental health counselor. Okay. And so he acted like, you know, you can trust me. And if we got married, your mother wouldn't be able to tell you what to do anymore. Appealing oh, to wow. her childish sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And her mother was like, great, bye. So um, she went to the courthouse and the clerk couldn't even look up at them. Uh, he, she just asked, you know, which one is the minor? Noted everything. They were married. And um, once married, of course, she left school, started working at a grocery store for minimum wage. He would abuse her. Um, she did eventually uh, leave that household with her child because Uh, And she left at 19 because she didn't want her daughter to normalize violence. Um, So her daughter would see her being beaten and she didn't want 
her child to think this is okay, this is normal, and this is just what marriage is. So, um, yeah, that's it. I mean, there are countries like, uh, you know, Niger, places in India and the Middle East where this the prevalence of child marriage is well known. But I know I didn't know much about it right here in the United States. I just know that there is a mentality that, well, if a girl can be with a man, then she knows what she's doing. However, Mm. these are still children. And who's who's supposed to protect who? (laughs) Are the adults supposed to protect the child? And is that protection dependent on how the child acts? If the child seems sexually interested, do you then remove your protection? Where is the logic? Seems sexually interested. Insane. Oh my goodness. The wording. What? Yeah, that's disgusting. So you know, of of course we all, as we're growing up, are um interested in how our bodies are developing, but our parents and adults in general are actually supposed to protect us and not marry us off. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's that. Did you, oh, did you have anything you want to add from what you found? Please. Well, just a, a couple of things. Um, and it mentioned that virginity. So this was specific to India. Virginity was an important part of Indian uh, culture. So parents wanted to ensure that their daughters did not have premarital sex. So child marriage was the easiest way to fix that. Wow. That and, seems like a jump from one to 10. <laughs> There's a lot of steps in between mm-hmm, if that mm-hmm. is your concern as a parent. Yeah. And then um, also that um, it, it started out of the caste system. So people were, um, you know, people were uh, marrying from different castes and they wanted to avoid that, especially because of young people and their emotions and desires to marry. So out of necessity, child marriage was created to ensure the caste system continued so what you're saying is before you get old enough to realize this caste system is inhumane and stupid we gonna marry you off to someone within your class yep 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 so you're admitting then that this is a backwards institution yeah so very interesting yeah very interesting but that's all i have so okay let's take a break Alexis, can you give us a little background on Malika off her and perhaps her motivation for Stolen Lives? So I don't have um, much on that. And I am not going to really talk about Malika because she wrote this along with um, another woman called uh, Michelle Fitoussi. Fitoussi, Yeah. Yeah. um, A French woman. Um, Well, she was born. She was born in Tunisia and two French parents. But she's also... um, She's a journalist and she uh, worked for Elle magazine. She also wrote a couple other books, but um, Michelle she talked did? about it. Yeah. Yeah. She wrote that um, book about Helen Rubenstein, the cosmetics businesswoman. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't know who that is. Oh, okay. Yeah. So <laughs> well, that's not important. And as I tell <laughs> this tale, but uh, <laughs> just a second, my. Uh, internet is uh, taking a sweet little time. I, I understand. To share. So she was a journalist. Michelle uh, Fatuti was a journalist. She worked for um, Elle magazine for years. Um, she's 
known for interviewing world leaders in the areas of politics, human science, sports, literature, and media. Uh, she's the author of screenplays, fiction. This book, Stolen Lies, sold more than a million copies around the world. Um, it was titled, when it was released, I want to say in France, it was entitled The Prisoner. And it remained on a New York bestseller list for 25 weeks after being stamped by the Oprah Book Club. Um, let's see. So, yeah, so that's a little bit about um, Michelle. But then also uh, there's a forward. It's not a forward. In the book, they talk a little bit about how Malika and Michelle came together. And Malika says she really oh, wanted was, to tell her story. Yeah, it is. OK. Yeah. Malika says she really wanted to share her story and their connection, her and Michelle's was just so. um, Like strong, naturally. Yeah, it was that, like the people you meet and you're like, oh, we're going to be friends. Right. And then yeah. uh, they were able to make that connection and it was easy for her to tell her her story. And she said mm-hmm. that really helped her to get her story out there. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm going to share about that. OK. Um, did you have a brief synopsis for us, not including spoilers of Stolen Lives? Sure, sure. So when an attempted coup d'etat leads to the death of General Muhammad Akfar, his widow and children, must suffer the price with 20 years of prison. This story tells us um, from the point of view of Malika Akfar, the eldest daughter of her life from the palace through her imprisonment. So did you have any first thoughts? Well, I've read this book, I think only once. I thought I read it a couple of times, but I read it once maybe 10 years ago, if not more. Um, so I remembered certain parts of the story that like haunted me, that stuck with me. But all the details in between, I have forgotten. So I was um, excited to read a nonfiction, which we haven't read in a while, I don't think. And then to read the story that I was once familiar with. What about you? What were your first thoughts? So you um, recommended this book to me um, some time ago. I think we were going to you had just read it. And so you invited me to read it also. And um, I started it and never finished it. So the story was interesting to me and I, I wanted to go back to it. And, you know, the to be read books that are on your shelf. This was one of them. And I missed having a physical book. So I said, I'm tackling my list (laughs) and I pulled out stolen lives. So I was excited to get back into it because when I originally read it, I think I got through the first part. And so I was happy reading. I'm starting it again. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, now that we have those details, thank you for that. The sides, let's get into the entree. And if you could, please give us a deep dive, a full synopsis with spoilers of Stolen Lives, 20 Years in a Desert Jail. Okay. Go. Um, <laughs> part one, family. So Malika was born April 2nd in 1952 to um, Muhammad Akbar, who was 31, and um, Fatima Shanen, who was 15 at the time. Malika is the eldest of five siblings, two brothers and three sisters. Her father was a career military man. And by the time he met her mother, he was the aide de camp or the military aide to General Duval, a commander of the French troops in Morocco. By 1955, her father had progressed to the chief of aide de camps to King Mohammed V. Her family was very close to the royal family. Malika's mom had known the king since her childhood. She used to live at the home of one of the king's sisters. 
Uh, Malika was spoiled by her parents. Uh, They dressed her like a little princess with clothes from the most expensive uh, boutiques. Her mom liked spending money. Um, And in 1957, her family moved to the Avenue of the Princesses. Um, And because her father had gained the trust of the king and Malika's mom's friendship with the king, Malika's parents were the only outsiders allowed to enter the palace and wander about freely. She became friends with the king's two wives and they just demanded to see her daily. She would bring the, the wives' did. clothes. Yep. Fatima, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, they demanded to see Fatima daily. She would bring the wives' clothes, cosmetics, uh, tell them about Gossip. the goings on, <laughs> yeah, outside of the castle. Um, so the two women, the two wives of the kings and the concubines, they love Malika. So they wanted to see her daughter. They wanted to meet her. So the first time Malika was taken to the palace, um, she was five years old and it was for a luncheon. So she witnessed the daughter of the king being introduced for the lunch. And she wondered who this person is and why all the adults were fussing over. And she was also excited to see a young child her own age. So the child was introduced as the king's favorite daughter, Princess Amina also known as Lalamina. After eating, um, Malika went to go play with the young princess, and for a brief moment, they got along perfectly. <laughs> but soon, the princess had bitten Malika, and Malika ran, sobbing, trying to catch her mother's eye, but her mom shushed you know, you're in the presence of the court of the king, so that's Dozens a little much of, of you. Dozens of concubines sitting on the floor, the king, you know, eating at his table in this huge room, bigger than anything you ever seen. And your child up here screaming yes, and carrying screaming, on. Screaming, screaming <laughs> and trying to get your attention. So her mom's response um, made malignant as a five year old <laughs> indignant for the lack of sympathy. So she went back to Lala Mina and bit her on the cheek. So mm-hmm. now the princess, who folks would pay more attention to, is howling loudly, and the entire court rose to see this. But the princess being pretty dramatic, she didn't get her father's attention right away. Um, so she screamed louder and rolled around on the floor. So Malika's like, woo, child, let me get back to my mama. A <laughs> <laughs> king finally intervened, picked up Malika, and asked her what happened. Malika said, she insulted my father, so I insulted her father and bit her cheek. Of course, this was a shock, but the king did laugh. And at the end of the luncheon, the king came over to Malika's mother and said, I'm going to ask you something that you can't refuse. I can't think of a better playmate or a sister for Lila Mina than your daughter. I want to adopt her. But you can come see her whenever you want. And Mm. the adoption practices were not uncommon at the palace. Childless concubines, adopted orphans, impoverished little girls, earthquake victims. Um, Girls would come to the court to become the companions of the ladies. But it was rare for a child to be adopted and have the equal status of the princess. And that is what Malika had. But Malika referred to this um, event in her life as a kidnapping because her mother left out hurriedly she was bundled into a car, whisked away to a villa where Lala Mina lived with her German governess. She screamed, she cried, she stamped her feet. And then when she arrived at the villa, she was forced into a guest room, the door uh, double locked. And of course she cried all night. And as you can imagine, for a mm-hmm. five-year-old, this experience of being ripped from your parents is pretty traumatic. Yeah. So she says... um, For both the mother and child. Yeah. She says her parents never spoke of this moment. 
And if there were um, explanations, she doesn't recall them. So the transition um, was very traumatic, as I mentioned, when her mom would visit. It was a terrible deal. You know, she's five years old. Um, all All she knows is her mom and she loves her mom dearly. And so it would be this emotional um, high and low when she knew her mom was coming to visit or then her mama would leave. And so it was just really hard for her Mm -hmm. to deal with. So over, of course, those visits, um, not of course, but those visits decreased because, you know, it was just really was hard. And how can you allow her? She's already adopted and she needs to make this life. So she had to reduce the visits a bit. So over the Mm -hmm. next years, next 11 years, Malika lived a secluded and protective life inside the palace walls or other royal palaces. Part two, palace life. Malika described her life growing up with Lalamina as a fairy tale realm of luxury, calm, and beautiful stories. She was taught the art of being a princess, um, manners, everything. Everything a child could want was available to her. The villa was in the middle of a garden, and she even had a zoo. The, tre- the king treated Malika as if he, she were his own daughter. Mm-hmm. But Malika still missed her family. About three years into her palace life, the king that adopted her died from a routine surgery. And Muhammad's son, Hassan II, became king. Um, he was 32 at the time. While it seems reasonable that Malika would go back to her parents, it was complicated. The return home would have implied that um, her mom, Fatima, showed less deference for um, Hassan II than she has, he, she has shown for her father. And then the other side of that is, how can you take this child away from Lala Mina at such a difficult time? So the timing was never right. And in Malika's mind, she became a commodity because the more influential her father became uh, politically, the more she was used as a pawn between him and the king. And so if her father would broach the subject of bringing Malika home, was it that he was questioning the way the king had raised her? So, yeah, so that was a, um issue. So she didn't go. She, you know, was, she spent 11 years in the castle, um, excuse me, in the palace. So for Lalamina and Malika, after the death of Muhammad V, um, life was the same as before. The new king didn't have any children, so the girls were able to demand his full attention. And although um, the king's father, um, Muhammad V, would come in, wake the girls up every morning, have breakfast with them. He would <laughs> join the girls with um, with their lessons. King Hassan II just came for a year-end um, activities. And so they received... Like a performance uh, at their school, he would come, but he wasn't... Yeah you know, overly affectionate with them like his dad was. Right. Not right. overly affectionate, but demonstrative. Affectionate, yeah. Demonstrative yeah. affection. So yeah. they received education in history, grammar, lit- literature, the math, uh, languages, and even uh, religion in French, Arabic, and English. Um, of course, she was learning German from the German governess that she had. The goal was to educate the princess up to a baccalaureate. And so their life was filled with being educated. Of course, they have fun, too, but they they have a strong education education. was taken seriously. I felt like they were exposed to a little more than the average bachelorette program when it came to worldly knowledge. Oh, Um, sure. Sure. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And did you get that the governess was like evil? Yes, I she did really that. wanted that. But then she would say things like our governess hated men and she would tell us, don't be alone in corridors with men. I 
was thinking that's good advice. <laughs> this governess was trying to school y'all to the game. Okay, I know y'all babies, but they marry babies here. So maybe don't, you know, be a little careful. Okay, so the harsh side of her was the fact that the mom, excuse me, um, the queen mother would bring them food, good food, but she made them eat <laughs> just the food that yeah. she would prepare. So not, you know, no special Unseasoned. treatment for you. No schnitzel, just like unseasoned chicken, <laughs> dry yeah. vegetables. She didn't want them to get too much pleasure out of eating. Yeah, so that that's just one thing that comes to my mind. So the, the girls were mischievous, but Malika was unruly and rebellious. She played tricks on <laughs> teachers, sawed the legs off a teacher's chair. She said bees <laughs> on a teacher who was allergic. She continually I got that in trouble. that was excessive. Like, you could have killed her, really. Yeah. <laughs> you uh-huh. kind of a psychopath. <laughs> but I think, and she doesn't say this, but that had to do with the fact that she was torn for her mother. She was battling issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally yeah, oh, battling absolutely. issues. Yeah. So Malika says she loved Lala Mina, the king, the queen mother, the the concubines but she truly missed her family she learned the two more sisters who were complete strangers to her um the girls would spend a lot of time with the king before he had his own um children one time um she speaks of an event where they were at a spa where the king and the concubines would take in water and she had only on a pair of underwear and so she was definitely afraid of being naked in front of people. She was so, a modest. She was modest. She was a modest child. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the king tells her to take him off because covering yourself to bathe meant she was afraid of male eyes. She's 11. She was 11. Okay. This hurt the king because since he was the only male there, it meant she had something to be ashamed of. The king slapped her for her disobedience and snatched the panties off. She stayed in the pool all night. So no one would see her naked. So the king had some very strict ways about him. And I would say that he was harsh. She talks about stories of being whipped for her bad reports as she got older. She said when she was 15, she received her first real punishment, real punishment from the king. So she had received other punishment, but this one she considered a real punishment. She was held down and the king was to give her 30 strokes with a whip. On the third stroke, he realized that, um, she didn't seem to be in pain. So turned out she had padded her clothes to keep herself from having all that pain. <laughs> so while the king was initially enraged, he ended up laughing. But she begged the king for mercy. You know, I will never have a bad report again. But that the concubines got involved and was begging for her to like spare her. Mm-hmm. Come on. Yeah. School is stupid. It. She's just going to get married anyway. <laughs> and while he didn't say anything about well so again she um she begged for mercy said she'd never have a bad report again but she did have a bad report again <laughs> and while like the next week and the king um didn't say anything about it initially but a while later he asked her yeah let's go for a drive which wasn't an unusual request because they would do stuff with him not again she's still not thinking anything suspicious about this but when she got to that villa Honey, she got the beating of her life. It was a very cruel beating. She says she still has scars from that beating today. And she knows in her heart that her parents would have never treated her that way. So, you know, it just made her miss her parents more. Nobody mm-hmm. escaped the punishment that the king gave if he felt like they deserved it. Um, the king, she felt like the king saw this as his way of acting as a father. And as the girls grew older, 
he took an increased de- uh, interest in their lives and that he dressed them like selected clothes for them. Like now, he would do his concubines. Mm-hmm. So like his fashion was his thing, I'm thinking. Yes. <laughs> he was very into the looks. L-E-W-K-S. <laughs> yeah. So they were teenagers in the 60s. So Malika like wanted mini skirts. She wanted to be hip. Oh, I mean, they're like... They're beyond rich, okay? These are mm-hmm. very wealthy. This is a palace of the king. So they have access to so many things. But she was like, they were like, it's inappropriate to bear your ankles. But she was like, I need that life. I want a mini Ankles, skirt. how about this thigh? Okay, mm-hmm. come on, knees, both of them. All of it. Put it <laughs> out there. So she just wanted to be a part of that life. She liked the fashion and all those fun things. And, you know, she was spoiled. So mm-hmm. um, I think he made a, a, I don't know, a wool dress for her that she could not pull down so it was like well she it. would pull it up to make it yeah, a mini it dress up. she would right she would have all these modest dresses and then secretly pull them up and belt them yeah. she's like oh you can't even tell this modest great <laughs> so she went from being a modest child to being twiggy you know yeah. <laughs> she exactly she was twiggy. exactly mm-hmm. um so malika's life what at the palace was filled with privilege but it also came with harsh punishment and she continued to miss her family and longed to be with them. And during her adolescence, um, she mentions that she missed her mother and was so lonely. At one time, she was obsessed with ending her life. Um, one time she attempted, and then another time she just uh, lacked the courage. But it, to her, she looks back, it just tells her that she had a will to survive. And one day at a palace hospital, at the palace hospital, the court was awaiting the queen mother to come out of a gallbladder surgery and the governess was talking about her mother negatively and Malika overheard the conversation. So Malika started yelling and the king heard her and told her, just, you know, be quiet out of respect for the queen mother. But Malika continued screaming and the king asked her to explain um, what's going on. And she said, I've got family. I'm heartbroken. I don't get to see them. And also, you know, Lala Mina is a ungrateful wretch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that evening mm-hmm. they sent her home it was yeah 19. he was like I'm not gonna disagree with you because her entire family are like that so mm-hmm. we gonna send you home <laughs> yep it was 1969 mm-hmm. part three home sweet home um, after she returned home Malika had to get to know her family all over again she had five siblings two she had to uh, get to know again three she didn't know at all she had to get familiar with the house there were pictures on the wall that she wasn't a part of she didn't know her parents and while she knew her father was someone that was important she learned more um, as she was out of the protective wall of the palace about the fear the respect and even some of the hatred that people have for her father um, her mother was an artist she loved the fabulous life and she spent her money accordingly um, <laughs> Her mother was happy and loved life. And she had a sister named Miriam that was sickly. She had epilepsy. So she would have fits of epilepsy. Um, And and they um, searched out the best doctors to provide care for her. And so that is what her life was. She had a brother named Ralph, I think his name is. And he was, you know, the first son. So, of course, you know, what goes along with that. Mm -hmm. We love you, son. He was like (laughs) an heir. He was pampered by all the women. He worshipped his father. He was like good looking. Yeah, uh, Maria and Sokana, Sokana were the youngest girls, and Maria charmed her father but didn't really express her feelings well. Sokana was sweet and affectionate. The youngest was Abdelatif, and he was still an infant. 
And he was a product of their parents getting back together after the mom got fed up with the infidelity. And she went off to, uh, did she go to London or she went somewhere and was living a life with a, um, her boyfriend at the time then, <laughs> who was in the army a soldier <laughs> yeah a soldier in the army and then uh, they got back together because so um, he's the head of the military he's very violent her mama was so fine that one of the soldiers was like I'm gonna risk it all and let's run away together it and you can all. open a clothing boutique and it's gonna be cute and one of his superiors was like you really stupid for taking off Kerr's wife and he was like well she mine now <laughs> <laughs> can you believe that Oh my <laughs> god, that is drama. So yeah. when the governess was talking about her that I mentioned earlier, that's what they were talking about. They was talking yeah. about that tea right there. They was mm-hmm. like, she is a loose she's a woman. fallen woman, yeah, <laughs> because she left her husband because he he had repeated infidelities. Yeah, so he was never trying to be quote unquote faithful to the marriage, even though yeah. he loved his wife yeah, 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 yeah. So um, they eventually got together because they they did love each other, right? So, yeah, and then um, they got divorced and got... He married somebody else. I'm so sorry. They got right, divorced. Right. Malika's right. parents. He married someone else, someone that the king chose. Then he went back to get his wife, divorced the new one, and they all just started living together again, the mom and, and the dad. <laughs> yeah. Like it never happened. Like it never <laughs> happened. And then they had the child, the the youngest child came from yeah. that. They wanted. They had high hopes for him. So, um... Uh, the youngest son, Abdelatef, was almost killed by a pet lion that the father purchased for him. Oh, yeah. That is insane. But that was a thing. Malika remained a rebel when she went home. She was close to her father and they were friends. And she said allies. Um, when he would go on his trips, he would ask her to pack her bags and he could so that he could be hip and with it. <laughs> yeah. Make me look good. Yeah. That's cute. Um, Malika had left the palace and was back in the world but because of her father's work she still had privileges she traveled first class the way some people take the bus she always had a guard the home was protected um, and she traveled she met famous and important people she her she took her family's wealth and privilege for granted and she was still getting poor marks in school and she had this little thing where she liked to sneak out at night and be in the streets partying. Malika wanted to be in entertainment and like the movie world in some and way. And she met an agent, like someone was going to represent her in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. and her yeah. father talked her out of that, right? No, that was the plan. He said, just wait until you're done with school. Right, for that and time. And then you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. All right. Part four. Two coup d'etat. Coup All right, never mind. Forget it. In 1971, a failed attempt was made to overthrow King Hassan. The king had been holding a three-day festival to celebrate his 42nd birthday. And all we know is the king managed to put the rebellion down. We don't know how. That's just what they said. In the end, 200 people died and 10 officers, including four generals, were arrested to be executed later. The conspiracy was led by General Medba, an officer of integrity. Um, He was appalled by the corruption in the country. He was killed by his accomplice. Malika's father pleaded in favor of the acquittal of about a thousand rebel trainees, trainee officers. And that was okay. General 
Aukers Road, General Aukers. I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm having a hard time with his name now. <laughs> General Aukers Road was actually never proven, but the way it was organized um, and the clemency that was shown toward the rebels made a lot of room for speculation. Yeah, because so, he's on the king's side and he's begging for the men that killed the king's guests and tried to kill the king. Yeah. It looked really sus. It did. So his relationship with the king uh, broke down. Uh, Malika had the feeling that the monarchy had changed after the coup. Um, the king was on edge and all the 10 people who were executed were close friends of Malika's father, General, General Ofker. And... He grieved those friends. And so although there was tension between the king and General Ofker, General Ofker became more powerful. He was appointed Minister of Defense and head of the Royal yeah, felt, Air Force. It felt like a keep your enemies close situation. So even though there was all this public speculation that Malika's father tried to have the king killed, the king promoted General Ofker. Yeah. Uh, Malika's dad. Yeah. To the point where he was like head of everything. Yeah. He was in charge of the army of the police and home affairs. So after the coup, the king would make frequent unannounced visits to their home, um, to the Ofker home, to the point of actually violating their privacy. It, so it truly does sound like a keep your enemies closer thing. It seemed as if the relationship with the, um, between the king and her father um, continued to um, grow, but, you know, in a struggle kind of way. Mm -hmm. Malika loved both men, but life was clearly changing. So she convinced her parents to allow her to move to Paris for school. But she moved there under a false name and she took her mother's maiden name. She went back to her life of studying and hanging out. Now, this girl, she just loved to hang out. When she moved <laughs> there, she was supposed to go with a friend that was supposed to keep her, you know, stay at home, study, do your work. Um, but she was just like, I need to be in these streets. And she was out partying and clubbing, you know, hanging out with friends, having a good time. So when she moved here, um, she didn't live the extravagant life. So it's kind of like she was in hiding, but still in these streets. She wanted to be a normal, what she saw as a normal late teens girl. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Girl in her late teens. Mm -hmm. So she didn't bring her um, mother's extravagant style because her mom wanted to hook up her little apartment and everything. But that didn't happen. She went with the kind of the low end stuff. Um, one evening. Like, you know, Chanel instead of <laughs> Oscar de Lorenzo. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One evening she was at a house party and the friend caught her in a panic. When she got home, she learned that there was a threat um, on her life to be abducted. <sighs> so, yeah. So when she got back to so she left the I think it was a house party, yep. you said. Yeah. So she left the house party because she got this call, went back to her apartment and a lot of her um, dad's friends were there there like men in the army and they're like we heard you were going to be kidnapped um so we want to know if you've seen anything suspicious and malika was like mm -mm. <laughs> oh yeah i've been being followed <laughs> now that you mentioned it yeah men and suits been following me and showing up at the house drinks anybody <laughs> cocktails in these streets Let's you get hear this me party started in these streets yeah. she just want to hang out <laughs> she was like spoiled and a little uh naive it sounds like yeah that's right so um, after that happened, um, she's still studying for her exam, living her life, being in these streets. And, um, it's 
like a month before her final exams and she gets into a car accident, a serious car accident, so much so that her face is actually disfigured. The doctors kind of the doctors, um, those that were given her care after the accident said that, ooh, her face is disfigured, you know, kind of like that. <laughs> they thought she was asleep. And they was like, oh, she's going to be ugly. That's a shame. I bet she was cute. Now she yeah, not. It, it, it did sound like that, didn't it? Um, happy hour? <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, they were talking way too much in front of yeah, the patient. Yeah, a lot, right? Because she heard that. Mm-hmm. It, anyway, yeah. she, um, she did recover from the accident. Um, but the king offered to assist her. Like, if need be, I will get you the best care. So you, your face. Yeah, I'll send you to the States for plastic surgery if you need to. Everybody's been in a car accident. Yeah. You'll be fine. Like consoling yeah. her. I'm here for yeah. you. Because it was her adoptive father. In 1972, mm-hmm. Malika came home for the holidays and spent the weekend with her family. And the months since her accident, her father had nearly died and a helicopter accident. And on another occasion, he narrowly escaped a bomb attack at an official ceremony that he had been unable to attend at the very last minute. Malika had always suspected, but she didn't have any proof that it was the king trying to get rid of her father. The rift between the men was continuing to grow. Um, in one meeting, a cabinet meeting, after just having opted for the increase of in price for just some basic items, oil, sugar, and flour, her father took out his revolver and threatened to shoot himself. So things are truly changing. Um, she feels like her father dreamed of uh, establishing a constitutional uh, monarch with the crown prince. And let me just say, I was thinking they were talking about the king's brother. I, I don't know. I guess I didn't know he had a son at this point, but maybe he did. Who knows? Yeah, I understood it. I understood it to mean that um, General General Ofker wanted, I guess there was a lot of corruption. It was seen that Hassan II was a corrupt king. So they wanted to start over with a, a new king and more democracy, yeah. maybe. So on August 16th, 1972, she switched on the TV and the presenter announced that there had been a coup and the palace had been fired upon. They didn't know who was responsible for the tax the attack she waited to hear her father was responsible Um, her friends were convinced that her father was responsible Um, but it was only speculation because uh, order hadn't been restored yet and at that point they know the coup had not uh, succeeded later that evening she received a phone call from her father and Malika said she felt like her father um, sounded like he was going to commit suicide as if he was recording his last message and that was actually the last time she spoke to her father early the next morning she received a call from her mother that her father was dead she knew then that her life would not be the same she went back home and immediately wanted to see her father's body but it wasn't allowed a woman wasn't allowed to see the body of a dead man However, she barged in and she saw her father kind of examined his body and saw that he was shot five times, one time in the neck. When her mom arrived to see the body, she sobbed, of course. um, But by this time, he had all he had been cleaned all up and was in the coffin. um, So only his face was showing. Um, And she said they killed him. Why? Why? And the soldiers overheard that. Yeah, that's what the mother was yeah. screaming. And the out. soldiers yeah. um, reported that the words of the mother back to the king. The king, um, you know, this is a time of mourning. Um, and the custom is 
that when you're mourning, you're not allowed to cook. So the king sent um, the food family. That was the custom. But Malika refused the food. And so this was. So this is two insults because the um, palace wants to push the message that the general committed suicide, even though it's obvious no man could shoot himself in the chest and uh, abdomen, you know, five times total and then once in the neck as a suicide. And, and so for the mom to be saying they mm-hmm. killed him was an insult to this message that the palace is trying to promote. And then for Malika to not accept the food that the palace has sent over was another insult to the king. Yeah. So as I mentioned, um, she was later criticized for that. And she feels like they used that as an excuse to imprison them. The day after her father was buried, the family was immediately placed on house arrest. Um, the staff was all fired and they locked the family in the house. That was it. This was the start of their period of mourning. Part five, imprisoned. On December 23rd, the mourning period ended. The af- that afternoon, the police arrived and ordered them to pack up for two weeks. They were being taken to the south of Morocco. They were assured that nobody would be able to get in their home um, because they were going to seal the front door. This was a promise from the king. But Malika, however, since that there was something else was going on and that they needed to prepare to be gone longer. So she took other stuff um, with her, um, like mementos, like uh, pictures and stuff. Um, They were allowed to take two people with them. So they took uh, Akora who was, I think, the cousin of the mom, of Malika's mom, and then Halima, who was um, the younger sister of someone else that worked for them. So Yeah, basically um, like um, a nanny and a cook yeah. that was devoted to the family. These, these women volunteered to come with them. Yeah, they volunteered not knowing what they were in for. That night, um, they traveled in a big American car that didn't have curtains or blackout windows, and they had an armed escort. At the first stop, um, they stayed in the town um, for about 24 hours in the house of a mayor, and then they got back on the road. And then while traveling, um, on the second leg, the men had them get out the car, stand in a patch of wasteland, and then the police threatened them with AK-47. Crazy. So, of course, the mom is feeling like this is it. They're getting ready to kill us. But it and was, to reiterate, this is a mother and her six children and two additional women who were friends of the family. Yeah. And of so the they, children, the oldest mm-hmm. was Malika. She's 19. And the youngest was the boy who's three years old. Three. OK, yeah. three. All right. Mm. Um, so this was really an intimidation thing that they were doing. And it was just the beginning. They arrived at in a remote little town in the desert. They had gone from wealth to poverty overnight. The tiny home that they moved into had three narrow rooms with uh, mattresses on the floor. There were no covers, no running water. They were given buckets for washing, drinking and doing dishes. Um, There were guards er everywhere and the food was rationed to them. So um, and there was mice and rats and scorpions in this house. And they had like Louis Vuitton and Chanel luggage. <laughs> so they're in just this um, undone building. But they're still 
basically palace royalty. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they're in their mind, they're wealthy people. So they all of the stuff they're wearing and bringing don't fit their surroundings. Yeah. Um, one morning at the end of April, um, they were made to leave. Now, again, started off in December. Here it is now, about four months later. Um, the villagers had started asking questions. Uh, they were outraged at how children were being treated. So they drove 18 hours nonstop in a van with blacked out windows to another location. So the village that they were in, those people were making it hot basically for the um, army guards that were guarding the Ofker family and asking like, well, who's in there? And these children that we see sometimes, who do they belong to and where are y'all keeping them? Because that building was crumbling so bad. Oh, that's that right. It, the day they arrived, it had felt part of it had fell on people and killed them. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. So they were treated more harshly at this new location than they were or excuse me, on the road to the new location, not even at the new location yet, but they were treated more harshly on the road. They weren't allowed to get out, not even to pee. They had to take turns um, using a tin with no lid. Now, this is like nine people mm -hmm. in the back of a van. And when they arrived at the new location, they stayed for a month and then they returned back to the um, town they were in before where the people were starting to question. But they were now in a, a, a much larger house, a bit larger. I won't say much larger house. But in this house, there was a hall, a sitting room, a bathroom with a shower and everyone had their own room. Um, they were they call themselves cleaning up the house and the guards kind of laughed at them. Because that moisture brought scorpions so that they had to deal with that as well. They explored the basement. They discovered the basement had cockroaches. Uh, the heat was oppressive. And then there were sandstorms. So they were really um, dealing with some um, harsh conditions. Uh, one thing that's interesting is her father knew a lot of people and people did like him. So there were people... When they went to these places, there was always someone that served as an ally for them that kind of some of the guys yeah, yeah. made it possible for them to um, have a few extras, even though many things were being withheld from them. In November of 1973, so this is now a year later, almost a year later, they were made to leave that home that they had gotten accustomed to um, for a more uh, place more remote than the last the nine captives were put into two rooms two two rooms their provisions were placed in a room that had horned ass so that's a snake some kind of snake and scorpions they even found a huge python in there um her mom it sounds like had created some kind of sauna system that malika referred to uh, reminded them of the turkish bath so this really um, the sauna system must have been really special, kind of a, a special treat for them. She would wrap like uh, twigs up with plastic and put it together like a Native American teepee. And then when they turned that hot water on, it would fill that small area with steam and it gave them like some normalcy. They could use that area to mm -hmm. shower and clean themselves. They were always looking for normalcy, whether it be for the kids playing games with them or for yeah. themselves, for yeah. their mental health. And they had a hole that served as a toilet. Uh, they slept on straw mattresses on the floor. So this is definitely 
before they had mattresses. Now they're having straw mattresses. In the winter, they were warmed by a lamp. They had regular visits from rats. Ugh. One time, her brother threw a bucket of water on one of the rats, and the rat went crazy and jumped up and bit her brother in the lip. Ugh. In the face. That's too yeah. much. Ugh, can no, you imagine? No. Yeah. That gives me nightmares, actually. With mm-hmm. each move, though, Malika tried her hardest to provide a routine for her younger um, siblings. Um, they woke up about seven, washed, had breakfast, and they would start work about 8.30. She gave them French dictation and then asked them to make a summary, give an analysis and text and answer grammar questions. So she was really um, giving them work to do. She wanted to keep them occupied and, like you said, give them some sense of normalcy. Um she made them learn five to six words a day with a dictionary definition and then use them in sentences. She added English and Arabic. Um, her brother, Ralph, and I think he would have been, she was 19, he was probably about 17 at this time. He taught the children uh, math. So Malika and her brother worked on the syllabus together. <laughs> so at night, guess what would come? Y'all bats would come and get on their heads. <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, my goodness. The bat would come and land on their head and they said they got used to it. Mm, that, bats are kind of cute, Loki. No, stop it. <laughs> get out of here. Oh, yeah, my goodness. So, yeah. I'm telling you, this is, you see me itching. This is all making me itch. That's what this is. The, the All the talk is too much. <laughs> so these people, they really tried to make the most of their confinement. But this experience was deeply challenged. By this time, they had been in um, confinement and isolation for a year. With no explanation and no promise of release. Right. Miriam is her second, is the second oldest after um, Malika. She was dealing with her illness. Um, She... She was still on, she still had her medicine. She had epilepsy. Yeah, I think she had epilepsy. Yeah, she had epilepsy. Um, yeah, she, and during one of her fits, she was burned by boiling milk and with no medication, no medical attention, um, it took months to heal. Uh, the next sister is Sokina, Sokina, and she dealt with anxiety and depression. I'm surprised she was the only one that dealt with that. Right. Okay. Maria, um, she, I think her situation, I don't remember what her situation, I can't remember. Did she not eat? Yeah, I think she did deal with some not eating. In any event, these children were struggling. And there was a touching part, there was a touching part where Malika says, you know, just as it's painful to see a child um, hungry, it's just as painful to see a depressed child. So these kids would just look out the window mm-hmm. for hours. Yeah. It's just sad. And not even sad isn't even a harsh enough word. Right. Their world was taken from them. They had no idea why. And the three-year-old was growing up. Now it had just been a year at this point, mm-hmm. but he was growing up without the, out, he was like, this is all he knew. The, this was all he knew was imprisonment with his family. Yeah. So there's some developmental issues there. Yeah. Socially. Yeah. They sent the king a letter because at this point, this like, this is too much. We're sending the king a letter. They sent the king a letter and they signed the letter in their blood um, in an effort to uh, appeal to his magnanimity. 
Then Malika, her mother, and her brother, Ralph, went on a hunger strike in the middle of winter. In the middle of winter. Mm. But that went nowhere. It, yeah, they no didn't accomplish cared. anything. Yeah. No one cared that they went on a hunger strike. So they decided to escape. That was the answer. They were just going to figure out how to get out of there. So they made a tunnel. They had a plan. They worked through their plan. And they picked the day they was going to escape. On the day they planned to escape, the police came and told them that they were leaving. So at <laughs> this point, they're like, oh, yes, the king has heard our appeal. We are about to be released. No, sir. Right. No, sir. Instead, they were blindfolded and taken to a prison 28 miles from Casablanca. This prison was the worst of them. This prison separated them into cells. Toilets were pits dug into the ground. And initially, they were allowed to see each other during the day and eat together. um, But at night, they would then go into the cell. At this point, mom was 40. Um... The youngest son, Adela Teth, was eight. Malika was 23. Um, So the mom and the youngest son, they shared a cell. Malika shared a cell with her three sisters, um, 13, 15, and 22. And then Ralph was 19 by this point. And he was in a cell by himself. So he was basically in solitary confinement. Yeah. Um, since they got there. And the way I pictured it, there was like a circle of very small cells and a courtyard in the middle. And when I say courtyard, I mean like a small backyard area of land. Okay. So not like acres. There's right. just this small little patch of grass in the middle. And they were let out of their cells to like see and touch and hug each other for like a little bit during the day. And then they were all put back into their cells. Again, right. the oldest brother alone. Alone. They would stay in this place uh, for 10 years. 10 years. The baby boy, the eight-year-old, attempted suicide. I think he was riding his bike and kind of, it was a bike? He was riding something. Yeah, they, he let him, they let him have a little tricycle. Yeah. And he fell off. They looked into his eyes and he looked out of it. Well, he had taken um, the girl who has epilepsy. He took all her p- pills and told them that he hoped that by killing himself, they would somehow get free. Yeah. An eight-year-old took that on himself. Yeah. Um, so they decided never again to talk about the harshness of their reality in front of him. They would always shield him. Yeah. Um, and he, much he did that because now he could hear them. In the past, they could, you know, kind of separate themselves and kind of talk about what's, what was going on. They didn't have that in this new um, location. Eventually, the family wasn't allowed out of their cells at all. And they couldn't see each other at all. And the oldest son would get beat up. It was like they were taking, um, I don't know, it wasn't that they were trying to get anything out of him, but they were just messing with him because he was the oldest son. And Yeah, so he's in solitary confinement for a little over 10 years, basically, and being beaten every day and malnourished. Yeah, and then by the time of... It's insane. By the time of their escape... He didn't have no teeth. Yeah, he didn't even have teeth. Yeah. That's, While they were there, they were able to set up a system of communication between the cells. Now, I couldn't visualize this. I was like, did they create a tube and use that? They were taking wires and connecting uh-huh. them. 
um, so that their voice would transport like through the wires. Interesting. And they pulled wires, I think, from the radio. Okay. Okay. To do this. Okay. Yeah. So they had a little system of communication because because they were no longer let out of their cells. They were to spend the whole day in these cells now and they couldn't see each other, but they could talk to each other. The food that they were given was rotten. Do you hear me? Rotten. Oh, bread. You remember, uh, Kari, when we read um, uh, Charlotte's Web and they talked about that rotten egg. Oh, yeah. yeah. This yeah. makes <laughs> me think of that egg because. They were given old bread, rotten eggs, um, vegetables, rotten vegetables. The eggs were black inside. Yes, just. I didn't even understand that. So she would open it, let it breathe out. So the whole self smelled like rotten eggs. Yes. For a day to cook it the next day. Yeah. And they would eat it. Yeah. Um, a few shriveled dates and molded oranges. She washed her hair with Tide. She said. They was like, her hair is so beautiful. She was like, that Tide gave. <laughs> the, guards, the guards would be like, I started washing my hair with Tide because, you know, the oldest girl, she got beautiful hair. So, you know, but it didn't do anything but give me dandruff. And she was laughing because she was like, all of us are going bald from washing our hair with Tide. And they want to be, you know, she was the influencer. Yeah. Basically. In the yes. You, the Instagram influencer. They was like, oh, what brand of Tide are you using today? Mm, black eggs? Delish. I got to try it. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. The guards were stupid <laughs> also. Yeah, they mm. did say they did make a point of saying that they were easily um, influenced. Manipulated. Yeah, yeah, manipulated. They mm. brushed their teeth with salt. And let me just tell you this. They made French toast out of rotten eggs mm -hmm. and bread <laughs> soaked in mice urine and feces. I have to tell yeah. you that. She remembers her sister sitting on the bed, picking out the feces and eating the bread that was covered in your mouse urine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they tried to take pride in themselves um, so they didn't lose their sense of humanity. They washed up daily. Uh, um, in the beginning. Yeah. In the middle, too. For a long time, they watched up. <laughs> they did really good. Okay? They did, yeah. <laughs> they did really good. One no time, judgment. None. None whatsoever. One time, um, I think she had something on her face. So Malika made a... Somebody suggested use dates. So she made a date mask. She Guess would what? take rations from her food and make masks to stop aging. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she was aging. like, I'm losing my best years in prison. I heard that a date mask can help reverse the clock. So I'm just not going to eat today, I guess, because I'm going to make this mask out of dates and, you know, be wearing it. And I said, you go, girl. OK, I get you priorities. <laughs> yeah, she did prioritize. <laughs> Um, but guess what? The rats ate that off her face. Okay. Off of her face. <laughs> the rats would climb on her face to eat her date mask. I am disgusted. I'm sorry. This is too much. Anyway. One time, I don't know if he was going to say this, but one time they found the cell would not stop stinking. The cell stunk. Mm. They didn't know why. They washed their bodies, their hair. They couldn't figure it out. Turns out a family of mice had burrowed in her mattress for warmth and she had crushed them in her sleep and their bodies were decaying in her mattress. Oh, you know, they had to pull out the decaying mice bodies with the mama and the babies and dispose of them. OK, so 
I could only share so much. It was a lot in this book. They went. What do we have to complain a about? Lot, okay, <laughs> do you hear me? A lot. Malika told the story. She, one of the things that helped them, that carried them, was Malika's ability to tell a story. She told a story called The Story that captivated her family for 10 years. So in order to remember this detailed story that she was creating out of thin air, she would write on paper that she made by peeling off the first layer of the boxes that the food came in. So there is a part where they get the box of moldy food. She flips Mm -hmm. it over on the ground. And as she's pulling off the paper, she sees her sisters fighting each other to lick the ground for crumbs. Mm -hmm. And so she said, from that point on, I made a rule. And I said, oh, what's this rule going to be? Um, they each had their day to lick the ground. They wouldn't be fighting each other mm. over. So that's where they are in their survival. Licking the ground, the filthy concrete ground that's covered in uh, mice droppings for scraps of bread. This fighting. She said they were like animals. Yeah, at one point. yeah that's ahead, right. That's what she said. But the story. Go ahead. Yeah, the story. That, that's what she said. This is pure torture. Do you hear me? Torture. Um, of, of children. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean... Mm-hmm. The youngest boy grew up in this. There was starvation. They had sicknesses that was difficult to recover. The effects of this imprisonment, they still have them. They last in a lifetime. Yeah, they'll, they'll never, never, never recover. Yeah. There was physical mm-hmm, and mental. There were cockroaches, mice, rats, mosquitoes, crickets, scorpions. All of these things came and touched them. No. Part six. I needed relief. So part six. Let's escape here. Okay. We need to escape. After 14 years of being separated, they were allowed to get together again. That was, I know, was a relief, a good feeling for them. They made a plan. They decided that they was going to go on a hunger strike. Now, you know, they done try hunger. Can I just, I'm so sorry. This is the last time. Oh, no, please. (laughs) So the king had a moment of grace and decided, I'm going to, hey, send down the line to tell the Oscar family that they can be released into this courtyard for a few hours each day again. When they were released, they didn't even believe it. They all ran into the courtyard. The mother did not recognize her children. Oh, it had been 10 years since she saw them. And they they were emaciated. Yeah. Imagine what that mother felt. Yeah. Mm. That was, yeah, it was really cruel. Um, so, yeah, after that, they're, they're making a plan. And as I mentioned, they, they've gone on hunger, hunger strikes before, but to no avail. But they decide they're going to go on a hunger strike again. I think they were on a hunger strike for like 20, 40 days. They're already, as Kari said, emaciated, but they're going to still go starve themselves some more. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. the mother attempts suicide. Malika does um, an assisted suicide of her sister, Sokana. That attempt failed. So you're talking about the night of... A Thousand Knives or something? Yeah, The Night of a Thousand Knives. So she described this 24 to 48 hour period as the worst um, period of their incarceration. And this was the night where they were delirious and um, everybody was trying to kill themselves in some way. Yeah. 
So I thought it was one of the she slit the cook's wrist. No, but it was her it sister. Was her, remember, because they were in the same room together. Yeah, yeah. you're mm-hmm. right. So her sister laid down and she slit her wrist with like a tin can, top. a tin can top. And she the sister passed out, but then came to and was like, you don't want me to die. You're not trying to kill me. And Malika was like, of course, I want you to die. Of course, I want to kill oh, you. I love you. Oh, my goodness. This is where they were. Oh, my goodness. So everyone was trying to kill themselves in some way, but their it seems their will to survive was, was stronger, stronger than their mm-hmm. uh, their desire to yeah take their life. It won out in the end for all of them, even though they all have scars from like the time they tried to murder themselves. This was yeah, rough. This was yeah, it was. Dark. Um, Ralph, the um, oldest son, he also attempted suicide again. Remember, he's been separated from everybody, and he remains separated. So while they know um, the mom and the girls know what's going on. Ralph is separated. He himself decided to commit suicide. The guards Without rush him one morning. Without even talking to other people, yeah. And he's passed out. They think he's dead, but he's actually in a coma. They put him out in the yard and um, the guards suspect that he doesn't have much longer to live. So he's out in the yard in a coma for like Where four days. Where everyone can see him. <laughs> Imagine how cruel this is. Yeah. Yeah. After the fourth night, he was still lying in the courtyard, but he overheard one of the soldiers talking um, to the commander saying, the soldier said to the commander, this situation has ruined my life. I'm ashamed to look my family in the eyes. I'm hunted by what we are doing. Murdering children is beyond me. I can't carry on. What do they want? The commander responded, they are all going to die, all of them, and they will be buried here. We just have to wait. Those are the orders. I was like, wow. Yeah. But Ralph heard this. He overheard this conversation. And so he, he was in the courtyard kind of recovering from coma. He jumps up, runs back into the prison. It like and- gave him the boost he needed. Like, oh, y'all waiting for us to die? That's the last thing we gonna do for you. <laughs> All you done did to us, we we ain't never gonna die. <laughs> exactly. Y'all gonna die Ex- before we die. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> so they devised an escape plan. They started building a tunnel. So they're building a tunnel through concrete and foundation clay. With plastic spoons, tin cans, and their bare hands. Their fingernails are falling off. Um, There is a point where Malika has no fingernails left. They're all gone. No fingernails. None. The determination. The determination. Mm. On January 27th, here we are. Guess the date. 1987, you guys. 1987. They started the tunnel on April 19th. 1987, they finished the tunnel. Even though they had taken these approximately three and a half months to do this tunnel, their plan was to dis- escape in December, December, because they felt like that was the absolute best time, uh, low risk to get away. December, they were going to wait nine months to get away. So their idea was that it would be freezing cold yep. and the guards would be um, like cuddled up in blankets in their watchtowers and not watching so closely because of the cold. So we'll brave the cold in our escape. Yeah. With no fingernails or teeth. However, huge bald patches in their head. Yeah. The mom somehow overheard 
that they were planning to cut off the exit that they had created for themselves. So they had to Not leave. even on purpose. Like the guards didn't know yeah. about the tunnel. They were just going to build another watchtower that would be somehow placed in a way that would block their tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. So she was like, you got to go tonight. You got to go tonight. 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 Yeah. So Ralph, Malika, Maria, and Adelita, the youngest boy, escaped that night. They were on the run for four days before they were recaptured. And while they were on the run... They were embraced by some friends and rejected by others. By most. Yeah. They went to... One woman started crying and said, why are you here? How can you do this to me? You have no right. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's what she said. Alexis, I show up to your door after being in prison for about 16 years in the desert. I have bald patches in my hair. I have no fingernails. My brother has two teeth. You going to tell me I don't have the right? (laughs) (laughs) The, I wait, mean, wait, we gonna fight. I might. I'm gonna be in jail for another reason. <laughs> I might, cause you look rough. Where you been? <laughs> you know you know me, girl. You better let me use your phone and take a shower Ooh. and make me a sandwich. <laughs> Good sandwich. And, and make me a sandwich for real. Mm. Girl. So listen. They went to the embassies. They were gonna they had a plan to go to the French embassy. The French embassy was closed. They went to um, the sweet Sweden, Swedish embassy, and they told them to go away. <laughs> they went to the American embassy <laughs> and they got scared and left. While there, another thing they did while they were on the run was they sent letters to newsworthy folks, um, people that they had known, um, people that they had heard on the radio. They sent letters to these people. They needed to get their story out there. They were able to reach out to the um, Radio France International RFI and speak with Alan um, de Chavron, a French journalist, and he put them in contact with an attorney. Um, now the world would know their plight, know their story. That's all they needed to do is get that story out there. Uh, they had spent 15 years in prison for the crimes of their father. They met with the uh, attorney that the journalist had set up for them. And the next day they were recaptured. After being recaptured, their treatment was much different. They were interrogated. No one even believed that they had escaped themselves. They were like, y'all had to have help. This is just not possible any other way. You didn't have any tools. But like break for a second, because when the um, when the two girls and two boys left, escaped, they left the mom behind. One of the sisters and the help, as you call in these two women that volunteered Mm. to come with them. (laughs) So they're constantly worried about them in the back of their mind. They get recaptured. They go to the precinct jail, whatever it is. And the guard is like, you had help. And she's like, no, we didn't have help. In fact, we left my mom and these women behind and we're worried about them. And he's like, never mind. You'll see them soon. We just want to know who helped you. She's like, are you dumb? Nobody helped us. They lead them to a room and there is sitting there an old lady eating Mm. soup like very Mm. carefully. And they realize it's Mm. their mom. The years of incarceration have aged her. She's still very beautiful, but she looks ancient. And so they realize now we're finally back together. There's nothing they can can do to us at this point that would take our joy away. So even during this period, they're. The recapture, like to be so close to freedom and then to be captured again, but to be with their mom and their friends and their sister again, they felt yeah. rejuvenated. So, um, yeah, the, you were going to say they were put in a palace. 
This is weird. Okay, the king yeah. is sadistic. <laughs> yeah. He is. He is. He has issues for real. Now I know everything they said about him was true because this don't make no sense at all. He didn't set them up in a, a lovely house. They said it was palatial and uh, gave them everything. This they is wanted. a new prison. Except they <laughs> yeah. had to stay in that house. They just can't leave. Yeah, but they a can new have, prison. You know, all the bread that, and butter and stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. Not covered in feces. This is new. Brand new. They can even have a cook if they want. Whatever you want. Oh. You just got to stay in this house because we can't have what? you moving to France or where they really wanted to go. Canada. <laughs> we can't have you doing that in embarrassing yeah. Morocco. Yeah. We ain't going to stand for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Th- it was so much. I, I left out a lot. Of, I, I I just had to. But it was so much. Um, they stayed in this imprisoned in this home for another five years until their official release. February 19, 1991. Let's take a to have this story what's your final verdict yeah okay and would I recommend this book I have to tell you right this was long this is a long episode this felt like a long book I did not enjoy reading most of it when she was talking about her palace life I said I recommended this book it's boring and then (laughs) and then when the two cousins came in as uh, being groomed for to be wives of the king and she said one was 15 and the other was 13 I said Mm -hmm. oh I'm done Mm -hmm. (laughs) picked it Mm -hmm. up days later because I had to finish for this podcast and it was grueling I didn't care about them details Um, now having read it it's weird because while I was eating it I wasn't enjoying it but now that the meal is done I feel like it was a healthful meal (laughs) I've learned um, a little bit about a specific aspect of Moroccan culture relearned it and the story is so powerful and it's written well. It is written in a way that is um, very detail oriented and the details didn't always interest me. I also felt like even after 20 years in prison, Malika is very self-absorbed and a lot of things were about uh, were a little egotistical to me. <laughs> a oh, lot of yeah. the statements. She acknowledged yeah. that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Even about her role with the family in prison and how they couldn't have survived without her. <laughs> Listen, Mm -hmm. I believe it, but I don't like to hear it (laughs) in the way that it was said. So in the end, I would say I would absolutely recommend this book and I would also probably not read it again. I didn't enjoy (laughs) reading it. The story, I will never forget. It is so powerful. Um, And I'll definitely ask people to read it, but I'm done. What about you? What is is your final verdict and would you recommend this book? So right, this is this is your third time or your second time? I think time? my second. I don't think I finished the second time. So this is I read it completely the first time, a little bit of it the second time, and now you know, so many years later, I've read it again completely. So yeah, um, it was a lot. It it was a lot of stories, information that I didn't want to hear, but I did enjoy it. Like you said, it was very well written. Um, and yeah, she was very self absorbed, but. 
she told that story about her she wanted to be in hollywood essentially right she wanted to live that that life so i think that is very clear um that she was self-absorbed that you know she talked about the love that she wanted to have she was missing out on this or that um she would never find her own love understood yeah that was like the best years of her life were spent in prison Hmm. Yeah. So I really enjoyed the book. I, I must say it was a lot to read. I don't have to read it again, but I would recommend it because it was just so it was so much that they experienced. I don't want to read about that. It's sad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's but sad. there's definitely in the end, it's never to make you feel lost in sadness. It's definitely this story of um, what's the word? Uh, Besides survival. Yeah. And. Well, anyway, I can't think of the word, but resilience. It's supposed oh, to, yeah. you know, oh, strengthen your faith in the power of resilience. So, and mm-hmm. tenacity. Yep. Um, so for it accomplishes sure. that. And it's less than 300 words. This isn't a huge, for all these details, this isn't a really long book. It's just, it can be grueling at points to get through. I did like reading about her uh, life in the palace. Um, that was always very interesting. Girl, I was so over that. I said 13 and they're grooming her. Oh, who the king, R. Kelly? I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. (laughs) And her mama was married, was, you know, started dating at 15 to this man that was in his 30s. 31. And the mom was 15. Yep. Mm -hmm. That was it. All right. Well, that has been the 20th episode of Lit Society Podcast. Can you believe it? Two zero. Two zero. We did it. It's done. Hey. So, you guys, Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Honoria and Kari Herrera. Support our show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know why you love us. We love y'all, too. Um, and let the world know. Apple Podcasts, five-star review. Also support our show by shopping our new luxury candle line, Lightotes. You can find them at L-O-V-E-L-I-T-O-T-E-S. That's lovelightotes.com. Uh, they smell amazing. And this Monday, we will be releasing a little something special in our luxury candle line, Little Lightotes. Hey! <laughs> so our candles are pretty large. They're they're big. We wanted them to be worth every penny, so we use the finest oils um, and fragrances, and then they're large candles. Yeah. But so you can try a fragrance before you invest in it. Um, we're making little candles, um, so check that out. Lovelightotes.com. Next Thursday, we will be reading a story that inspired one of our candles. Actually, do you know what that is, Alexis? Rebecca. Rebecca by Daphne de Maupier. It's like pretty great, actually. Now, I, I'm not going to tell you what I think of the book <laughs> yet, but the episode is amazing. But the candle. Um, yeah, we made a candle out of it. Almost we like it. The um, candle right. is lovely. <laughs> so next week, Rebecca. And until next time, you guys. Read something. Read something. Read something. Read something. <laughs>